If you've got a woman who has been gruesomely murdered in her own home, nine stab wounds, and she is literally decomposing in that home and nobody knows about it. Welcome back to the Better Call Clay podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Today we've got Aaron Terry in studio and we're talking a tragic case, the murder of Dorothy Conrad. Uh, welcome, Aaron. Um, real quickly, I'll introduce you a little bit and let you do it through the rest yourself. Uh, Aaron and I actually met each other at the DA's office, Brazoria County, um, several years ago now. You were working there as a prosecutor. I'm working there as a prosecutor. And uh, Aaron is now in his own criminal private practice, criminal defense primarily, venturing out a little bit into personal injury and some other things like that. Uh, so we still uh, see each other, collaborate, work together. Uh, but you know, maybe not quite like we did back in those days when we were down in the trenches at the DA's office. Um, so go ahead and tell us a little bit about your practice, where you're uh, based out of, what you do, and uh, a little bit about your back background. Well, first of all, thanks for having me, buddy. Good to be with you. You know, you and I, we, we spent four years together at the Brazoria County DA's office, and that was really uh, good years for me. And, uh, you know, the camaraderie and the time we spent together, I cherish it for sure. So thanks for having me. Oh, no problem. Um, my name's Aaron Perry, and I have an office in Bel Air, Texas, and been out on my own for a few years now, and primarily criminal defense, but also making some changes now and venturing into personal injury and some civil litigation. Okay, so you're still going to be hanging on to criminal defense, still working. And by the way, you we've, we've got our bourbon, right? We've, we've decided we like the good old times. We're going to break out the bourbon and have a few sips while we're doing this. Why not? Get yeah. to spend some time with my friend, and why not? A glass of bourbon never hurt anybody. The old Four Roses here, too. That's good stuff. Good stuff. So um, so you're still sticking with criminal defense, but you're, you're um, going to... Basically, what you're doing is you're trying to build a personal injury practice as well. That's exactly right. You know, being selective on the cases that I choose now, criminal defense, if the right case comes along, it's something I feel passionate about, then I'll take the case, you know. Uh, but uh, primarily now, what I, what I see myself doing is the evolution of the practice into civil law. So oh. personal injury, you know, car accidents, uh, any type of injury that's occurred, that's, that's where I see myself going. Okay. Uh, but still wanting to stay in the courtroom because that's, I mean, let's face it, trial attorney, that's, that's where you're at, right? That's, that's what you love. That's the passion, Clay. You right. know that. We tried a lot of cases together, you and I. And for me, uh, being in a courtroom and getting before a jury is, there's, there's no better high. You know, for me, that the adrenaline of presenting a case to a jury is something special, for sure. So and if I can continue doing that, that's that's what I want to do. And that's a good way to put it. It's, it's I mean, trying a case to a jury, it's intoxicating. I mean, there's a, literally a, with, for me, there was always a withdrawal period, or there is a withdrawal period after I'm done. It, you know, I feel like an empty person after I've tried a case, and, and I'm really kind of looking forward to the next fix almost. Yeah, I agree. You know, trial law is something very special. Not everybody's meant to be in a courtroom, right? There's many types of lawyers. You have your lawyers that have never set foot in a courtroom. But what separates a trial lawyer is somebody who's willing to go to battle, who understands that a case can be won or lost in an instant. So you've got to be on your toes, ready to go, ready to go to battle. And if you're not, you're going to pay the price. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, we, one of the, the thing that we were going to talk about today, uh, it's an old case that you and I uh, actually prosecuted together uh, when we were at the DA's office in Brazoria County. 
um, Dorothy Conrad, an elderly lady. She lived in what I would call uh, sort of northern Brazoria County, uh, outside the city of Pearland. We, we uh, around the DA's office, we always refer to it as the oil fields uh, because of the, the geographic location. It's in basically some old oil fields that have been under lease for the last hundred years. And, and these people have individual little parcels of land out there. But really, when you drive out there, you're driving onto private property that is an oil lease but these there's this community of people that live out there and, and dorothy conrad lived out there by herself is that fairly accurate to kind of set that scene for sure yeah it's a case that's very memorable yeah. you and i tried that case together very sad case you know uh, my recollection of the case is you've got a 82 year old woman who really lived on her own had no had a family but very little family and the family that she did have was distant and so, well, and, and her son, uh, in fact, he was uh, incarcerated. Correct. I mean, and talk about a, a, a bad family situation. Her son's actually incarcerated uh, for having sexually assaulted her. And, and then to add one layer to it to make it even more, more disgusting, more vile, um, he had used uh, some kind of cleaning agents on her, bleach on her, in order to uh, essentially try to clean up the DNA that he might have left behind and in and, and what were her private parts, essentially. And, and, that, and that was an older case prior to the murder, but that had already happened to her in her lifetime. For sure. Yeah. You know, when, once you and I started digging into this case and we really started to really just peel the onion, we saw so many fascinating things. I mean, it's a case that I will always remember. So tell me some things about the case that you would remember, some things that stuck out, or give us a give us a brief timeline, and let's talk through some things that you that you say will always be with you. Well, for me, it starts with the victim. Okay, right? right? You get this case, and you you know you are uh, selected to prosecute this case, and there's a huge responsibility when somebody's lost their life, and you're the prosecutor or prosecutors on the case, and you want to get justice, right? That's what a prosecutor's role is, not to win but to see that justice is done. In this case, what sticks with me is you've got an 82-year-old woman who was murdered in her own home, and that's everybody's biggest fear. You know, the details, and maybe you can kind of tell us a little bit. I, what I recall, there was nine stab wounds that occurred to this woman, and she was violently murdered in her own home. Right. So let's, uh, let's set the scene a little bit. We've got her living uh, in this area out in the middle of an oil field. She lives in a mobile home. Uh, I mean, her, she's got neighbors, but we're talking 250, 300 yards away, each of her neighbors. Um, and she's on her own. No, no other family living with her. She's living there by herself. Um, and it's, uh, it's really, I guess, her male lady that kind of kicks things off in terms of uh, police involvement, right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, that, that's the other sad thing about this case. You've got a woman who has been gruesomely murdered in her own home. Nine stab wounds, and she is literally decomposing in that home and nobody knows about it and you've got the mail lady who was uh just doing her job delivers the mail every day and realizes something's off because the mail is not being collected it's accumulating and, and the mail the mail lady uh her name belinda sambera um she she knew dorothy collected her mail every day pulled it out of her mailbox so two or three days worth of mail start piling up and suddenly she realizes hey something's not right here uh, her car is not here. Um, she's not collected her mail. I haven't seen her. She usually is somewhere around uh, to greet me. She comes out to visit with me. She's not there. So something's going on. I, I, I should call the police and check. 
right? Right. So, yeah. she, so she calls 911 and she gets, uh, she gets basically through cell phone situations, gets Pearland PD, right? That, that's my recollection. I think there was an officer, I believe his name was Officer Herrera, was the first to respond on scene. And that's another... And, uh, he, and he figures out, I guess, while he's there, hey, this isn't really our jurisdiction. This is a county thing. But he, you know, and, and, and we're recording this at a time when, when, you know, police officers are taking a little bit of heat. The Daniel Herrera, one of the good guys, I think, um, goes above and beyond, calls his, his lieutenant, his sergeant, asks for permission to, hey, I, I want to stick around because, by the way, I think there's some connection with this lady and an abandoned car that we found in Pearland. So I want to kind of see what's going on here. Is it okay if I stay around? So the, the Pearland PD higher ups give him permission to stay and he, he starts poking around. What does he find or what does he figure out? Yeah. And, and very good officer, very smart officer. And he realizes that, you know, he's got to investigate, but he doesn't want to go too far. So he makes sure that he does what he needs to do and calls the proper people. But at the same time, what I recall is that the vivid description of what he sees, what he smells, right? So he, he comes up towards the air conditioning unit there and he describes what he smells, right? Even from getting outside of his car, it's so strong. Describes the smell of death, a smell that he says, once you smell it, you never forget it. So yeah, he, he's overpowered by this smell that's literally coming out of the house at this point. Um, he realizes got an, a window uh, unit, AC unit. Now, if you're not from Texas, you, you don't really understand this as well. But here in Texas, mobile homes, they have window units that, that go in the windows. He sees a window unit pulled out of the window, just sitting on the porch that, that leaves a window open. And now this is in November, so that's a little odd. I mean, it's cooler nights. So, uh, But he also is getting this smell that just you can't get away from it. And so that prompts him to get more officers out there. Basically, we we call in the Brazoria County Sheriff's Office at that point because it's really their jurisdiction. It's out in the county, right? Correct, correct. And that's when they investigate further, and unfortunately, the discovery is made. So they discover Dorothy in the house. Um, she is what I will call in an advanced state of decomposition. Um, I mean, it's very swollen, bloated, green. Uh, she's literally, her bodily fluids are, I know this is graphic, but they're oozing out onto the floor through the carpet, it, almost into the subfloor of the house, basically, right? We tried a lot of cases together, Clay. We saw a lot of things, a lot of things that we'd like to forget, but this was something that I think is burned in both of our minds. Uh, one of the most gruesome scenes and discoveries that uh, we've ever seen. Yeah, I, I always say you, there's just certain things I'll never be able to unsee. This is this will be one of them, those, those pictures. And, of course, we're not even there on scene, but we're just seeing the pictures, so we don't get, the, I guess, the benefit of the smell as well. Um, but um, officers arrive, initial investigators show up, take a look around. I think everybody's initial thought is, is that Dorothy had, had died of natural causes and nobody had discovered her. And, and the reason why we have the, the, the state of the body and the, and the surroundings are that she's just been decomposing and nobody knew it. Right. And I think that gives you an idea of the condition of the body. That body was so badly decomposed. There had been so much time that it elapsed before that discovery that they're not sure what happened. They thought maybe she died of natural causes and almost can't even see the stab wounds at that point. Really. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. Um, so we get a couple of other investigators show up. It's not unusual to have multiple investigators on scene, but we get a couple of, uh, 
And, and I won't knock the, the first guys there, uh, just not as experienced, not as seasoned. Uh, but then we get new investigators that show up that are uh, veteran investigators, a couple of guys that we know very well, uh, Daryl Collins, Stephen Buchanan, um, really good investigators at the sheriff's office. Uh, some, they, I think they've maybe one or both have moved on to other things now, but they show up and right away they start noticing, no, some things are not right here. There's some things that are wonky. What, what are they seeing that's causing them to say, hey, wait a minute, what's going on here? Yeah, again, you know, top-notch detectives. These guys really take the time to evaluate the scene and to process the scene, and they see some things that are just troubling. Um, one is blood, right, and the condition of the body. And when they investigate further and really just process that scene and and make sure that they've done everything they need to do, they discover, oh my goodness, something horrible has happened. Yeah, so we're, uh, we're looking at, they find some blood in the kitchen sink. Um, one of the investigators goes out and notices her car is gone, and I, I think there was, um, if I remember correctly, maybe I'm, I'm making this detail up, but I wanna say there was glass on the floor of the garage. Right. Uh, window glass. So it looked like a window had been broken or something had happened out there that, that led them to believe, wait a minute, something's, something's fishy with the car. Uh, they also didn't like the window AC unit being pulled out and, and set on the, the porch or, or wherever it was there. So there were some things to them that said, no, nah, there's something else more going on here. So they, they, uh, they want to, I guess at that point, they want to focus a little more intently on the body and figure out can we find any obvious wounds? But it was it was difficult for them because well, one thing you had all these space heaters in the house, and Miss Conrad didn't do the central heating thing. She had space heaters in every room, and a lot of them. And so that had really kind of cranked up the heat, and um, you know had really done and done its thing on on her body in terms of decomposition to the point that even moving her, let alone inspecting her, but even moving her became difficult because of what we in the business know is what basically skin slippage, your, your skin and your, your tissues start to kind of slide off your bones at a certain point. And I know that's terrible and disgusting, but that's the, that's the scene that we're confronted with here. And that makes it all the more difficult to, to determine what happened. Absolutely. And, and, you know, as seasoned detectives that these guys were, uh, you know, they, they took the time to make sure that they, uh, investigated and did what they could in regards to finding out what happened at this scene. You know, the body needs to be collected. The body needs to be sent off for an autopsy and, and let the medical examiner do what he needs to he or she does to determine what happened to this body. But at the same time, you've got a scene that's got a lot of question marks and these guys knew they needed to investigate further. So they, they processed the scene. Miss Conrad, she's, her body's off to, be, uh, to have an autopsy completed. Um, there's some other things though, that are happening sort of simultaneously and outside the confines of the scene though. We've got an, we've got that, that Pearland PD officer, officer Herrera, who, um, had also been the same officer, I believe it was that had found Miss Conrad's car in the city of Pearland parked on some random street, correct? Correct. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that. Why was that significant? What did we, what did we learn from that? Right. So, you know, these officers, detectives, they did such a good job because they said, okay, why is this car that is the victim's car parked over here? There, there, something is up, something's going on. So they took the time to investigate. What they needed to do was execute some search warrants, investigate and talk to witnesses, talk to neighbors and 
possibly if there was any sort of surveillance footage that they needed to, to get. From the neighborhood, right? Correct. And yeah. they were able to do that. And I remember specifically you and I, when we were prosecuting this case, the time that we took to look at that surveillance footage and make sure that we had all our ducks in a row. And it, it's amazing when you watch the footage and you start building a timeline, and that's what you and I did, you go back from the initial scene when you believe the murder occurred to establishing a timeline. And it was incredible how the pieces started to fit. Well, and so the, as far as pieces go, when they processed the car on the scene, um, one of the things that stands out to them is a jack-in-the-boxer seat. Yes, and that is something that, you know, these are, these are facts that you just can't make up, right? You've got an abandoned car, you process the car, you start looking at the visors, you see some blood on the visor, you take a swab, you collect the swab. Now you're looking around. What can I find? What key evidence is in that car that I can use to help me in my investigation? And the detectives, they look and they find a receipt from Jack in the Box. They end up collecting that receipt. They look at the timestamp and it's off to that location to see what they can find. And so they go there, get in touch with the manager at the Jack in the Box. It's off of the South Beltway, essentially, uh, close to Pearland, but not not quite Pearland. It's, I guess the city of Houston is what that is. And um, they, they're able to, because, the, because of the timestamp on the receipt, they're able to get the manager of Jack in the Box to pull up that video. And we have essentially that transaction on video. And what we've got is, by all appearances, we've got Miss Conrad's car occupied by two, uh, what I'll call young white males. Right. Yeah. One of them, uh, specifically, the driver's got a pair of white sunglasses that are very distinctive. Yeah, I'll never forget watching that video. And what you see is you see Miss Conrad's car. You see it pulled through the drive-thru. And then once you see it, you're like, oh, my goodness, we have got our suspects. And what, what hits you is you've got two people in the vehicle. So you know you've got two suspects now. That This is going to be a uh, you know multiple co-defendant case, right? Mm -hmm. And you've got uh, one of your suspects reaching out of the window. And you see tattoos on his left arm. Right. And you see sunglasses. And so the detectives... Right then and there, we've got some leads, we've got suspects, let's investigate. But there was something very interesting that occurred. Well, and, and I'm going to let you talk about that. One of the things that I'm going to go back to is that, that video that they pulled from that neighborhood. It was a, a garage camera that faced down the street. So you see these two people walking, what we think is walking away from this Conrad's car. The interesting thing about them is, is we can almost make out, I mean, we can make out on the video that one of them is wearing a pair of white sunglasses on top of their head. And they both appear to have some tattoos, one more than other, the other. So it's, it's literally we're tracking our suspects at this point. Right. You see uh, something very suspicious on that video. First of all, you see two people. Mm -hmm. You see somebody wearing sunglasses that appear to be the same sunglasses that you see in the Jack in the Box video. You see the tattoos and you see suspicious behavior. And it's something that we, uh, you know, it's unbelievable how when a case comes together and you start seeing all the pieces fit together, uh, it's incredible. Yeah. Now you were going to talk about something. I don't know. I may have cut you off, but uh, you know, we're now we've got Jack in the box. Uh, we know kind of who we're looking for. We don't know where to look for them. Uh, we don't know their names. We don't really even have a great view of them. All we've the most distinctive thing we've got about this entire video is. Uh, a set of white sunglasses and some uh, some tattoos on an arm. 
What happens next that's just outstanding or just, I mean, you can't make this stuff up? One of the things that never leaves me is Detective Buchanan talking about how when they executed a search warrant on that specific day, that same day they had viewed the Jack in the Box video. Mm -hmm. So he had seen two suspects in this Conrad's car. He had seen the white sunglasses. He had seen the tattoos. Yet at the same time that he's executing the search warrant... And, and the search warrant they're executing is actually, I guess, at Dorothy's house, Miss Conrad, right? Correct. Right there in the oil fields there on Choate Road right. and at that home. And, you know, as good detectives would do, they're interviewing people. They're talking to neighbors and... Canvassing the neighborhood is what they call it. Absolutely. Yeah. And while they're doing this, the detective, <laughs> he... I mean... It, it, so a couple of dummies walk up, basically, right? Yeah, and I'll never forget um, his words. He said, it just hit me right in the face. You see it. You see it. You see a guy with the sunglasses. You see the tattoos. You see suspects that you literally have seen earlier in the day on video. And yet, what does a good seasoned detective do? He's got to play it cool. Plays it cool. Plays it cool. So we literally have these two characters sort of stumble up and insert themselves into this scene. Um and one of them wearing white sunglasses, got tattoos all over him. The other dummy, just a guy that's with him, looks a little bit like what we've seen on the video, but nothing distinguishing, right? And uh, Buchanan plays it cool, just basically lays it out and says, well, we're, you know, we're just talking to everybody. We're just, you know, we're just trying to find leads, you know, trying to figure out anything that might help us. Uh, would you mind talking to us? Um, walk us through what he does there. Does he get a Does he get a DNA sample right away, or did they get search warrants for that, or how did they go about doing that? What so did they What did they notice first? The The first thing is, you know, he he realizes that he sees some suspects in front of him, right? So again, he's got to play it cool, and they've got to do their investigation. But yet, he's just having casual conversation. But when you're doing that, you, again, a good detective, just like a good prosecutor, has got to be on their toes. They've got to look for clues. They've got to look for details. And he notices that one of the suspects has got a cut on his hand. And now that's the other guy, not the guy with the sunglasses. Correct. And at this point, the, the detectives don't, I guess they've ID'd them, so they know they're dealing with a, a James Krajnik, uh, or, or Kranick, however he said it, and then also a, a Gregory Branham, right? Correct. Okay, and then as it happens, uh, Gregory Branham is Dorothy Conrad's uh, next-door neighbor, Right. I mean, two, right. 200 yards away. But I mean, they had spent some time in a house very near Miss Conrad's home, I guess. And I say neighbor. I mean, what it was is it was a flop house is what we call it. Or a, uh, basically you, you went there to use drugs and people right. people coming in and out. I mean, it wasn't a, it's not a great neighborhood. Um, and um, they had been in the house for a little while. One of them maybe dating a girl that lived there or there was something to that. And uh, so they had been kind of living in the area. So I think the next step was that they wanted to get some swabs. And right. That, when we say swabs, these are DNA swabs to say, hey, listen, we've got blood that we found at the scene. We've got blood that we found in the car. Mm -hmm. If you've got nothing to hide, give us a swab. And, and these guys do. Correct. Because, of course, they don't, I mean, looks bad to say no, right? So you're going to say yes. Now, your defense lawyer would tell you, do not consent to that, you know, but of course it's, it's hard, it's hard not to, you know, you, you, you want to, you want to play it cool. So they consent to the swabs, they collect their DNA. It all gets sent off, right? Gets sent off and you've got a positive hit. What, and so what did we learn? What happened? What were the results? We found that, uh, there was a, uh, 
positive match for Gregory Branham. And that was the case that you and I had tried. Right. And his blood was found in that kitchen sink. It was found on the counter. It was in the home. Right. And that I, th- I believe that the blood of Branham was actually uh, commingled with the victim's blood. Right. It was what we call a, a mixture profile. So the DNA profile came back as two people and they could, um, basically they couldn't, uh, the way DNA profiles work is they don't come back and say, hey, this is this person's DNA profile. What they do is they run it to exclude the, the person's DNA from the profile. And so they figured out that, uh, that they couldn't exclude Gregory Branham or Dorothy Conrad from this mixture DNA profile. And, and then at the end of the day said that they were in what, 99.96% certain that the DNA profile we were looking at was a mixture of Dorothy Conrad and Gregory Branham. Yeah. And you know, as a prosecutor, when we were prosecuting to have DNA on somebody, that is what you dream of. Right. 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 And so you can't overcome that. That is something when you when you have your DNA that's found at the scene, you're in trouble. Well, and that's and that brings me back to um, a knife stabbing, right? That that's one of those things that I always looked at a little differently than I did uh, a shooting. Stabbing, you have to get, you got to get really close to your victim to do it, and there's got to be some some anger and rage there because it's it's. I mean, it sounds easy; they make it look easy on TV, but it is actually hard to stab somebody to death. That takes some work. And there's some inherent risk in it in that you can, in this case, like Branham did, you, you cut yourself. You know, I will never forget when we tried this case, when we were preparing, I was fortunate enough to be able to give the closing argument. And I remember uh, talking with you and just really trying to figure out how we were going to present this case and what we wanted the jury to know. And you made that point, and it stuck with me. You know, to be able to shoot somebody, you take a gun and you shoot them. And you can do it from the distance. Uh, not that I'm saying it's easy, but you, you pull the trigger, the gun does the work, right? Absolutely. Right. Your words, and I'll never forget it, I think I used this in the closing argument, is that when you take a knife and you go up to somebody, the victim, and you literally take their soul out of their body and execute them mm-hmm. nine times, how personal is that? Yeah. In their own home. Right. Somebody who's never done a damn thing to you, 82-year-old woman, horrific, horrific. You're just there to steal some stuff. You just happened to encounter her in the house. This is exactly what happened in this case. They were there to steal some things, came across the homeowner, I mean, probably on drugs, you know, had to make some decisions, made some bad decisions, but, you know, it takes, a, like I said, a special type of rage to stab somebody to death, Uh, especially an 82-year-old woman who's, I'm going to say, largely defenseless. And so, uh, yeah, for me, that always stuck out. It was, uh, that was the terrible thing about this case. Now the jury, they, uh, they did the right thing, right? They, they came back with the verdict that we asked for. Right. We presented our case and I think the, you know, it, it was a very, very hard emotional case. And I think it took us about a week to present this murder case. And, you know, we, we presented the arguments to the jury and I think they came back and close to a half an hour with a guilty verdict. Right. Now, the real good verdict, and maybe we didn't, uh, you know, of course, as prosecutors, you don't ever want to, you don't want to oversell your case. So we had never really alluded to, in our case in chief, when we presented the guilt-innocence phase, what exactly, uh, who we felt was the one that stabbed her. We had, you know, we kind of gave the jury an idea, but it wasn't really until punishment that we really trotted out that Gregory Branham was the guy we believed was the killer. 
and he needed uh, he needed a heavy sentence. And and the jury delivered that, right? No doubt. You know, uh, something symbolic in their verdict, though, wasn't there? Absolutely. This Brazoria County jury, and I think you and I recall when we we selected this jury, and and you never know how that process is going to go. But we had a good feeling about it. We had, you know, as prosecutors, there are no secrets. The evidence is the evidence. All cards on the table. All cards open face for everyone to see. This case was it. It was what it was. It was horrific. We presented our case. They came back with an unbelievable verdict, 82 years. Yeah, 82 years. I mean, that's significant. Why is that significant? You know, that was the age of the victim. Yeah. You know, 82 years, she unfortunately had to suffer this gruesome death, you know, in her, you know, right at the, you know, when, you, when you get to be that age, you want to go out on your own terms. Right. You don't want somebody to come into your home and punish you and execute you in that kind of gruesome manner. Nobody deserves that. So right. I thought that this jury, they sent a statement. Right. They said, you, you know, you, you're going to do this. You know, you, I, I, I recall. And let's face it, I mean, 82 years, I mean, we're talking really, I mean, parole eligibility at that point, there's no difference between 60 years, 82 years in life. I mean, you're still eligible for parole in 30 years. Uh, realistically, he's not going to make parole. Uh, he's going to do a good number of those years, if not, maybe even, you know, die in prison. Uh, but yeah, 82 years is a, a way to basically send a message. And that's, that's what they did. They sure did, you know, and you never know how it's going to go. You always wonder, you know, the defendant on trial was 21 years old and you always want to know, Hey, is, is this going to be something that they look at and they, you know, consider his age and maybe go light but that was not the case. Yeah. They sent a statement. Fascinating case. Uh, Aaron, I want to thank you for uh, joining me today, discussing this case, enjoying the Four Roses bourbon with me. I'm enjoying it. Cheers, buddy. Yeah, cheers, is, man. Uh, uh, not amazing. that we're, uh, you know, certainly not celebrating anything about Dorothy's death. We're maybe more celebrating her life, but also more that uh, justice was done. Uh, we got to play a part in it. And uh, so for that, we'll, I think we'll always be grateful and, and thankful. Uh, but again, I want to thank you for coming on. And uh, for those of you listening to us today, to this episode, so. I, it's good to be with you, Clay, and really celebrating just being with you and spending time with my buddy. And for all those out there, if they ever need an attorney, and, uh, you know, they can find me on AaronPerryLawFirm.com or HelpMeWithMyCase.com. And it's good to be with you, Clay, and, you know, just enjoyed it. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, again, all y'all listening at home, um, you Know where my podcast is, YouTube, uh, Anchor FM, my webpage, uh, claycaldwell.law. Uh, and again, we want to thank you for tuning in.